Turn to Genesis chapter 8. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's found on page 6. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 9 of 17. Excuse me, chapter 9, verse 17. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heaven was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the, dark, out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and of all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds this blood, the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with them, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, 
it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Father, I, I just pray that you would be glorified today by the preaching of your word, that you would speak through our pastor, that your Holy Spirit would accompany those words, and that you would bind these hearts, that our hearts to your word, that you would bind your word to our minds, and that we would take what we learn today into a lost world that doesn't know you and needs you so desperately that you would use us to the end of the world and to the end of the street to share this light that we have with this lost world. That is my heart, that is my prayer, and I ask it through Jesus Christ. There is something appealing and exciting about new things, a new home, a new job, a new city, a new church planting effort. The, the church I grew up in in Knoxville just last week introduced the man, a man to the congregation who will in all likelihood be their new senior pastor. New stages of life often come with excitement. Susan and I just took our oldest son this week uh, for a visit to Ball State. Uh, college will be a new time for him, for us, for his siblings, a new goal to pursue with new opportunities in a new city. We even took a little time to uh, meet with a man that I knew uh, who is a pastor of a church. There will be a new church setting for him on most Sundays. There's something appealing about new things, even less significant things. I get excited when a new book comes in the mail because I ordered it and it's come and it smells good. I like a new book, that new book smell. I don't even know what a new car smell is anymore, uh, I, but I do know what new book smell is, uh, and I love it. New piece of technology, a new college football season uh, as a fan of both Tennessee and Memphis, I'm already looking forward to a new college football season. Uh, hopefully there will be great newness there. Now, of course, not all pursuit of new things is good. Our motives in looking for new something can actually be quite self-centered. Uh, we may want to just want to leave rather than stay, want to escape rather than endure, may want to flee rather than stay faithful. But generally speaking, there is something appealing and exciting about new things. Newness is a good thing. In fact, newness is one way to describe the effects of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Colossians 3, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. The gospel brings newness. God is in the business of making things new. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may be in a place right now where newness sounds pretty good because maybe things have gotten stale, maybe things feel stuck, and God in His grace is a God who makes things new, who does bring revival to the hearts of His people, who does refresh us through His Word and His Spirit and the fellowship of His people. 
This newness is a theme that runs throughout the whole of the Bible. And that's what we see in this second part of the flood story. Last week we saw that God's, God judges sin and saves His people to accomplish His purposes. And this week, in this part of the story, we see that God keeps His promise and makes all things new. God keeps His promise and makes all things new. There's a few things here we're going to look at. If you're just very, very eager for us to just rejoice in the fact that we can now eat meat, uh, and you're hoping that this is a very long exposition on uh, capital punishment, um, you'll be very disappointed. Both of those things are in there. I will mention them because the text does. But this isn't actually a text about uh, dietary needs or restricted to uh, capital punishment issues. This is a text that teaches us that God keeps His promise and makes all things new. And everything else serves that one large idea. First of all, we see that God remembers Noah. That's the first thing we read, isn't it? But God remembered Noah. The first of several great but God you know, moments. But God remembered Noah. And this phrase actually stands out at the center of the entire flood account. It is the apex of the mountain of God's work through this moment in history. So I, just, I want to actually just walk you through so you can see. Uh, I'm just, I'm, we're not going to turn to all these texts. I just want to retell the story of what's happening and what we just read so you can see how this stands at the, at, in the middle. So that in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, we see the corruption of all flesh. And then in chapter 6, God resolves to destroy the earth by flood. Next, God commands Noah to enter the ark. Then the flood begins and the waters prevail. And then, but God remembered Noah. And from there, it's as if everything turns back. The waters recede. The flood ends. God commands Noah to leave the ark. God resolves to never destroy the earth by a flood again. And then He makes His covenant with all flesh. You see that? That's what in biblical studies is called a chiasm, where everything comes to one point and then it comes out. Chiasm, because chi is the Greek letter chi, all right? So everything comes together to one point. And that one point is this one point that God remembered Noah. God is going to keep his promise to Noah. Now, what is this remembering? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that God remembered Noah, that because somehow before this, God had forgotten him. That's not what the Bible means by God remembered Noah, as if the flood is raging on the earth and God thinks to himself, now, what was I doing here? What was I doing? What was I doing? Oh, oh yeah, Noah, Noah, I should get Noah. That's not what is happening here. That's what happens to us every day, isn't it? You walked into a room maybe this morning and you thought, what am I doing in here? And maybe you still don't remember why you walked into that room this morning. And it will strike you as you lay your head on the pillow tonight. Oh, that's why I went to the kitchen this morning. That never happens with God. God is omniscient. God has perfect recall of everything. When the Bible speaks of God remembering Noah, he's speaking about God keeping his promise to Noah. God remembering is God preparing to act. God remembering is God preparing to intervene for His people. So this is the kind of language we have before God sends Noah, uh, So sorry, God sends Moses to lead His people out of slavery in Egypt. So Exodus 2, God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That remembering is a preparing to act because in chapter 3, God is going to say, Moses, go. This remembering is also the way that, that Moses prayed for God to show mercy to his people. 
Later on, after the golden calf incident, Moses prays in Exodus 32, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. As Christians, this is how we can pray. Think about one word that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is translated as spirit. The spirit was hovering over the earth, and here the wind, the ruach, is blowing over the waters. The spirit hovered over the waters, the wind is blowing over the waters, and now they will be made to recede. You see, the waters were sent by God in judgment, and now... It says He will cause them to subside, to abate, to return. It's the same word that the prophets will use as they preach to Israel to repent. God looks at the waters and says, repent. And they do. That is the God that we sing to. That is the God that we worship. He is the one who caused the wind to blow on the waters and they turned back. Next, dry ground emerges from the waters. You remember when that happened in Genesis chapter 1? The ground emerges from the waters. Here, though, it is described as quite a process. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which is uh, eastern Turkey, southern Russia, northwest Iran, kind of between the Black and Caspian Seas. The ark comes to rest there, and Noah sends out birds to explore. He sends the raven first. It doesn't come back, but ravens are strong that way. They can fly. They can live off the carcasses that are floating on top of the water. But then he sends out a dove, and he sends it three times. The first time, there's no place for this bird to land, so the dove comes back. The second time, comes back with an olive leaf, meaning there's some kind of progression. The water's, start, the water's farther pushed back. And then the dove doesn't return at all. Why? Chapter 8, verse 13. In, this, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Things were dry. The dry ground emerges from the waters. And then finally, that dry ground will be populated by animals and human beings, just as in the creation account. Did you notice? I mean, listen, uh, verse 16, uh, 15. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Noah will not leave until God says so. This is another evidence of Noah's faith. John Calvin says this of this moment, How great must have been the fortitude of the man who, after the incredible weariness of a whole year, when the deluge had ceased and new life has shone forth, does not yet move a foot out of the ark without the command of God. All the way to the flood, how had Noah walked? By faith and not by sight. And now that the flood is over... How is Noah going to walk out? By faith and not by sight. Not even when everything looks really good. You ever thought that? You ever thought, everything looks really good here. I think I'll take steps. I don't even know that I have to pray about this. I'm just going to do it. And then you find out I shouldn't have done that. Things go terribly wrong. It was not wise at all. You didn't seek wise counsel. You didn't pray. You didn't seek the Lord. We are called on to walk by faith. And Noah is an example of that. He walks by faith. As chapter 6 said, he walks with God. 
But in all of this, God is restoring His creation. God's committed to His people, and He has a place for them, a renewed earth. It's a new creation emerging out of the chaos of the corrupted creation. And dear friends, this is only the beginning. Because even as there is a greater salvation than salvation from the, ar- from the flood through an ark, there is salvation from a greater judgment that God brings in Jesus Christ. Just as there is a better creation than the renewed earth after the flood, which is the world we live in, there is a greater new earth. God promises it in Isaiah chapter 65. He says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Aren't you looking forward to that? Aren't you looking forward to the day you won't even remember the curse? What was that like? To, what was that like? I don't remember. Isn't that great? What a sweet, sweet gift of God that we will not remember the darkness and the horrors of this place. Jesus' earthly ministry is a reminder that the new earth is coming, isn't it? What is it that is happening when Jesus stills the chaotic sea. He is demonstrating His absolute power over creation and that everything that's wrong in creation will be turned back. What is happening as Jesus heals? You see, we think Jesus... Sometimes people tend to think that Jesus' healing ministry is restoring to health that which is broken. But actually, no. When healing happens, when Jesus speaks to a blind man, or touches a deaf man, or raises a little girl from the dead, or raises Lazarus from the dead. It is a pointer. This this is not restoring to what this world has to offer. This is a pointer to what a world we don't even know yet has to offer. Completion. He reverses the curse, the effects of the curse by healing the blind. He reverses an effect of the curse when He opens the ears of the deaf. He reverses a piece of the curse when He raises the dead. And then ultimately in the end, we finally read in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven. It's finally somebody, God gives John a vision of it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God." And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is what Jesus Christ is doing right now through the work of His Spirit. Little by little, He is bringing new creations into existence, moment by moment, as people turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of His grace and the work of His Spirit. New, 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 new. Until that day when everything that reminds us of this curse is gone and tears are gone and death is gone and mourning is gone and pain is gone. Because the former things have passed away. That's good news, brothers and sisters. God makes all things new. He is renewing humanity now and He will finish making all things new. And the restored creation of Genesis 8 is a pointer to that. God remembers Noah. God restores His creation. And God renews His covenant. That's the third thing that we want to notice. God renews His covenant. God had said He would establish His covenant, meaning He would confirm it. 
In other words, that covenant God made at creation to bless mankind, made in His image, that we, might, that we were called in our mandate to fill the earth, to have dominion over it. God says that covenant is still in place. And here God confirms His covenant. He renews it. And I just want us to notice a couple of things about this renewal. First, God restates His mandate, the restatement of God's mandate. Chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then at verse 7, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We remember that from Genesis 1. And Noah and his descendants are to have authoritative, protective, governing dominion over animal life, over and over human life. But the curse of sin has changed things. Verses 2 to 4. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And, I gave, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. There is no more perfect harmony between human beings and animals. There is, we'll go on to see, there's still no harmony between mankind and it himself. Fear will dominate the animal world. But now, friends, that's not a new situation because of the flood. That's a new situation because of sin. When God renews His covenant here after the flood, He is doing so in the context of a fallen world. When God had first said, let them have dominion over everything, it was in the context of a world which was created without sin. There was no fall. But here there is the fall to account for. They, man, we're still, animals are delivered into our hand in that dominion type way. But fear will dominate and animals will serve as food. And so that you maybe are awake and don't want to miss this, all God's people said, Amen. Animals are food. That's wonderful. But there are still limits. Did you notice that? This is not a free-for-all. This is not a do-anything-you-want. The blood is off limits. The blood is its life, and all of life belongs to God. It does not belong to us to do with it as we please. Animals will be used as sacrifice, their blood as atonement. So there is a sacredness that belongs to animal life. Abuse can't be tolerated. But if that's true for animals who are not made in the image of God, how much more true ought it to be for human beings, right? We live in a world which is very dark when it comes to these things, which has in too many cases reversed the very priority here. That one will be lynched if they unduly harm an animal. And celebrate it as free and independent should they abort the baby inside them. This doesn't mean it's right to abuse animals. But friends, we have reversed what God says. We have reversed the order of priority here. And our culture needs to repent of it. We are only storing up wrath. When we went to Ball State last week, this calls to mind, we, there's a section where there's like this, this red light where all traffic stops at some point and like you can cross in all of these different directions, right? So, but there, students can sign up to like have sign-up tables there or have their peaceful protests there. Uh, for whatever. And when we were there, there was a young lady standing on a bench 
with a sign that said if we had a minute of silence for every life that was ended because of abortion, we would be quiet for a hundred years. We have completely messed up God's priorities when it comes to life. Here, though, is not so much about life inside the womb, though it speaks to it. Because all life, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, is life created in the image of God. But here... God speaks. He goes on from the dominion over animals to the responsibility of dominion over human life. And this is what he says in verse 5. So he talks about the lifeblood of animals, but then he says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning. There will be an intense investigation. You will answer for this. That's what he's saying. I will require a reckoning for the life of man. It will be set right. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God requires restitution for the taking of human life. Did you notice he will say, he said in verse 5, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and every man. When you get to Deuteronomy and you're reading the law, you'll read something like this. You know, your ox gores somebody once, okay, there's going to be a problem. If, you're, if you don't control that ox, if you don't put that ox down and that ox just keeps on goring other people, it's not just the ox who's going to be stoned to death, it's going to be you too. Because human life matters more than animal life. Restitution must take place, and God entrusts that restitution to mankind. Did you notice that? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man. Now, obviously, all those who take the life of another human being will ultimately answer to God. Temporally, in the governing of a human society, God entrusts this to man. Now, this is not permission to go on personal vendettas and to personally take vengeance for anything. In fact, the Bible would command against that in Romans chapter 12. But in the Old Testament, in the law, what we find is that this is entrusted to leaders, that when someone takes the life of another human being, this is the punishment. And there are, very, there are extensive stipulations in Deuteronomy that the evidence must be clear, the witnesses must be corroborated, the judges must do a full investigation before deciding anything. There is great care given to this. And this kind of punishment is, hand, is expanded not just to Israel's leaders, but to all the governing authorities in a place like 1 Peter chapter 2, where governing authorities are to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Okay? Now, there is certainly division on the whole idea of capital punishment, probably division among us, let us first say that this is a subject which ought not to be taken lightly. It is not a place for pride or arrogance or harshness. Christians need to be thoughtful and not flippant when it comes to matters like this. Why? Because an image-bearer's life has been taken. And an image-bearer is facing restitution for that. This is serious business. Great care should be taken in such cases. It matters how we adjudicate these things as a society. We should grieve and speak out against abuses of those, uh, the, of the abuses of those who abuse such power in human history. There was a book, uh, John Grisham, who mostly writes fiction, wrote a nonfiction book. I can't remember. I couldn't. I actually remembered opening a tab. This is an example of forgetting. I opened a tab uh, in Chrome in order to look up the title because I've actually read the book, but I can't remember the name of it. But it's about this man in Oklahoma who's on death row, and it turns out after he finally gets a retrial that he was not actually guilty, which he'd been saying the whole time. We ought to speak out about that. We ought to hate 
abuses, and corruption. We ought to do everything that we can as a society, as those, if you are ever entrusted with these kinds of things, to take very care, very great care to avoid corruption, to avoid error. That said, the question of whether governments have the authority to punish in this way, and the question of whether governments can use such authority is not a question in the Bible. It is difficult. It has intricacies that we who don't know the law, don't read these things, don't understand, don't, haven't spent time thinking about them. So we need to pray for those who make such decisions. We need to pray for those who try such cases. But this is an authority entrusted to man by God. This is all part of God's mandate to have dominion over the earth. He is to work it and He is to keep it, protect it. But we also see about this renewal of His covenant, the expansion of God's promise. Did you notice that? Look at the second half of verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. God will never destroy the earth like this again. And he gives that assurance in chapter 9 with a sign. A sign is basically an external confirmation of what's been said and promised. So in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 9, God says, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is set in, is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established or confirmed, same word, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That word established is not used in chapter 8 verses 21 and 22 because this is an expansion. And then in chapter 9 he says, I'm going to establish it, renew it. Because if you notice in chapter 8, God is saying this in his heart. And in chapter 9, we get an inside look. I mean, in chapter 8, we got this inside look into the heart of God who's committing to never do this again. And then in chapter 9, he is affirming the covenant he's already made by saying, I won't do it. And here's the sign. Now, isn't it interesting? God says he will see the, the bow and he will remember. Then why does he tell us that? If this is all just about what God's going to do, why does he tell us? Well, dear friends, he tells us so that every time water is reflected and refracted through water droplets and the rainbow, rainbow appears in the sky, we remember what's actually happening there. We remember God's faithfulness to keep his promise. We certainly, there are floods, there are natural disasters, but every time the world is not destroyed by one of them, we ought to remember that God is merciful. And why do we receive this mercy? On what basis do we receive mercy? It is, not, it is certainly not because we deserve God's mercy. We deserve what Calvin said are daily deluges. We deserve a nonstop flood of God's judgment. But God says He will show mercy. Why? The answer to that why is in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 8. Then Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground. We receive mercy on the basis of sacrifice. Think about that. 
The Bible says, when God smelled the pleasing aroma, then he said. And you and I are still enjoying this mercy right at this moment. I mean, whether you are a Christian or not, there is a sense in which there is a mercy in the fact that we are not drowning in the flood we deserve. And it's this burnt offering. In the burnt offering, a clean animal is sacrificed and its blood is shed for the atonement of sin. But then the whole carcass of the animal is burned up. It is, it is a picture of the one offering the offering, offering the sacrifice. It's a picture of that one's wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, this smelling the pleasing aroma, if we just went on and we read in Leviticus, we would see that the pleasing aroma of sacrifices was a way of speaking about those sacrifices which are acceptable to God. Pleasing is actually a word that has a connotation of having a pacifying effect. In other words, God's anger is appeased by this sacrifice. Not forever, but for now. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But on the basis of this sacrifice, God restrains His wrath and shows mercy. This whole account is a glorious picture, isn't it? Of a God who keeps His promise and makes all things new. That God's chosen man... Noah, the apex of the flood story, this story of God's work of salvation through judgment, that Noah is a new beginning, head of a new humanity, and on the basis of Noah's wholehearted atoning sacrifice, God's wrath is appeased and mercy is extended to the world. Now, if you're a Christian, doesn't that ring with familiarity? It should. This is like a pre-telling of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like the trailer. But it's not like those bad trailers that have all the good bits already in them. It's like a trailer that just teases you enough to get you in the theater, and then it's more than you could have ever imagined based on the trailer. And this flood account is a trailer to something far greater. Because Jesus Christ is the apex, not only of the flood story, but of the whole story of the Bible, of God's whole story of salvation through judgment. Jesus is the climactic character of all God's work. Jesus is the last Adam, head of a new eternal humanity. Jesus had a wholehearted devotion to God which was seen in His perfect obedience. And Jesus' wholehearted devotion to God was seen most fully when He made the final once-for-all atonement for sin through His sacrificial death in which He Himself was consumed by the fiery wrath of God so that God's wrath was satisfied in Jesus' death. We sang that this morning. That on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. And now on the basis of Jesus' wholehearted, sacrificial, perfect atonement, mercy is offered to the world through the preaching of the gospel. That's why our partnership with the Gebbert's matters. That's why, quite frankly, what our missionaries do in general matters. Because this mercy that is extended in Jesus Christ is not a temporal mercy. It is an eternal 
mercy because in Jesus Christ we have what Hebrews 13:20 says is the blood of the eternal covenant. Dear Christian, this should make your heart explode with joy. You are presently sitting squarely in the mercy of God. And it's not going anywhere. Not just because you're alive. Not just because that car accident wasn't as bad as it could have been. Those are just little glimmers. The red-hot sun of God's mercy is in Jesus Christ. That's where we're warmed by His mercy. And soak it in. And if you're not a Christian, as I said, even now, God is showing mercy to you. Not simply by sparing your life that you might have another day, though that is a merciful act by God. But that as you sit here and as you listen, God is bringing to your ear the message of an eternal mercy. The mercy we enjoy by having our life spared one more day will end when this life ends. And all that will be left is judgment. All that will be left is the flood of God's wrath forever. A fiery wrath. But God is bringing the good news of the gospel to your ears. That you might know His eternal mercy. That you might turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would do that, if you would trust in Jesus and His sacrifice for sin, you would know His mercy forever. And out of the chaos of this world will emerge an uncorrupted, uncorruptible new earth in which we enjoy the Lord forever. In your presence, Psalm 16 says, in your presence there are pleasures forevermore. And that is what the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ gives us. Would you turn to Him? Would you seek Him for mercy? Would you throw yourself on Him at His feet, at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy? If you would, Jesus Christ said, all who come to Him, He will in no way turn out. Praise the Lord. Let's pause for a moment of reflection and then I will pray to conclude our service. If you are not a Christian and you would like to know more of who Jesus is, what He has done for us, what it means to turn from your sin and trust in Him, I would encourage you just to turn to the person next to you who is a member of this church and ask them. Any of us, myself included, would love more than anything to talk with you about your soul, to talk about following Jesus, to pray with you, to see you profess that faith through the waters of baptism, to see you receive the mercy of Christ. Now let's reflect alone and then I will pray.
Our Father, we are thankful that you are merciful and long-suffering. We know ourselves to deserve nothing but your wrath. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we enjoy nothing but your mercy. We thank you for this account of the flood. That which we profess with our mouths and our hearts to be true. In all its terrors and glories. And we recognize that this is only a trailer of what is to come. That there is an eternal judgment and an eternal mercy. And I pray for each of us that we would examine our hearts to see whether we are in the faith. Whether we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice alone for our salvation. We thank you that you are a God who remembers us because you remember Jesus Christ. And that on the basis of Jesus, you forgive our sin and that you are faithful to your promise. We are thankful that you make all things new, that you have made us new, and that you will complete that work one day. We pray, God, that we would live as new people who are not citizens of this world, but are citizens of heaven. We pray that we will not be satisfied with or seek our satisfaction in the things of this world, for you have not made us for this world, but for another. And we pray that those that we love, those that we know, those that we interact with on a regular basis who do not know your mercy, who, as your word says, are currently under your wrath, that you, by your grace, would open their eyes that they might enjoy your mercy. We pray that you would make us faithful to speak your gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would make us a church that is faithful to your gospel in every one of our activities, in all of our teaching, in our individual lives. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything that we may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.